It's Friday 27th of October and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, Israel, Hamas and financial markets, what history tells us about geopolitics versus asset prices. But first, Neil's out this week, but I'm happily joined by Andrew Hunter, who's our Deputy Chief US Economist. Hi, Andrew. Hi, David. How are you doing? Good. It's Fed Week. We've got a Fed statement this coming Wednesday after their two-day meeting. What's the expectation from that meeting? And specifically, what's the kind of messaging we're going to get from Powell and the FOMC? Yeah, so I think, first of all, no change in rates. That's pretty much universally expected at this stage. But I also think there's probably not going to be a huge change in tone from the Fed more generally in terms of the the statement or from what Jerome Powell says either. You know, I think it's going to be about emphasizing this continuing data dependence. They'll want to keep the option of further tightening on the table, but I don't think they're they're sort of ready to make any strong commitments either way on that. In terms of the recent data, obviously the the big news is continued strong US economic growth, which on the one hand is a, a potential concern for the Fed. But that's come alongside sort of general signs that inflation is nevertheless continuing to gradually ease. We're also seeing labor market conditions still cooling gradually. So overall, I I wouldn't say there's sort of much need for a, a big shift in messaging from the Fed. Yeah, talk a bit about that Q3 data, could you? Because at least some of the market have said, well, that's an argument for for the Fed to remain vigilant and and perhaps push through another rate hike, if not this coming week, then certainly soon down the line. What is our expectation for Q4? And, 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 you know, in terms of the balance of risks for the Fed's next move, we still think that's that's down, isn't it? We still think that the the cut is the next shift from from the FOMC. Yeah, that's right. And look, there's no denying that the Q3 number was very strong headline growth of 4.9% annualized. I think there's quite a number of reasons to expect a renewed slowdown in the fourth quarter, though, and potentially quite a sharp one. First of all, if you look at what was driving growth, so one of the the factors in the third quarter was quite a big contribution from stronger inventory accumulation. That's sort of always one of the most volatile components and is is difficult to forecast. But all else equal, that does you know imply a, a potential negative for the fourth quarter because there's more room now for the pace of in- inventory building to slow and for inventories to become a drag. Even if you look at Sort of the other components, though, so consumption growth was also very strong, accelerating to 4% annualized in the third quarter. I think there is still you know, plenty of evidence to suggest that strength isn't going to last either. I think it's worth noting, if if you look at what happened to real disposable incomes in the third quarter, they actually declined uh, by 1% annualized. That's partly because of what we've seen recently in terms of higher energy prices, eroding purchasing power. But it's also a reflection of the the easing in labor market conditions that we've had. So employment growth trending lower, wage growth cooling as well. So all of that's translating into to much weaker growth in household incomes. And at a time when the personal saving rate is still unusually low, it's, it's still running at about I think half the rate it was on average for the pandemic. That does all suggest that this current very strong pace of consumption growth is unlikely to last. And that's particularly when you consider the other headwinds that consumers are now facing. So we've had student loan repayments formally resuming from this month. That's, we think, worth something in the region of 
0.4% of disposable income. So, so sort of taking another bite out of households purchasing power. And the other factor to mention, of course, is this recent surge in long-term borrowing costs. And I think, you know, although the the exact causes of it are, are debated, I think in many ways it's just an illustration of the fact that the full impact of the, the Fed's monetary tightening over the past couple of years is still feeding through. And the, the higher the long-term rates go, I think it, it is increasingly likely that we'll see that take a, a further toll on the economy. And presumably with the 10 years been flirting with 5%, presumably with all that's happening with, with bond yields, that's a, another disincentive on the part of the Fed to, to consider raising rates further. Yeah. So we've, I think we've certainly seen no appetite from the Fed to sort of risk stoking the sell-off in the, in the bond market further by, you know, dialing up the, the hawkish rhetoric again. Um, we've actually seen a number of officials now, including Jerome Powell last week, discuss the idea that to the extent that higher treasury yields represent a tightening in financial conditions, that in theory should be a headwind to growth, a headwind to inflation as well. All else equal, that does suggest there's perhaps less need for the Fed to hike its policy rate further. This coming week also has October payrolls coming as well. Any chance of, of a hawkish surprise there? September was a was a big number. Do you think October is going to be a repeat of that? Well, payrolls is difficult to forecast at the best of times. And I think it's, it's proven particularly tricky over, well, really over the past couple of years now. We did have a big rebound in the pace of growth in September. Our baseline forecast is that that will not continue in October. So we're forecasting a more modest 200,000 gain in headline payrolls. But I think probably what's more important for the Fed is what we see in terms of the unemployment rate. We think it's probably not going to change in October, but it's still a little bit higher than it was a few months ago. But in particular, wage growth. And I think if you look at the various survey indicators of of labor market slack, various forward-looking predictors of wage growth, essentially, they're all still pointing to a continued slowdown. So I think even if we do get another reasonably solid payrolls number in the the report, I think there's still a good chance that we'll see wage growth continuing to slow. And that would, again, feed into this idea that you know, strong economic growth doesn't necessarily mean that the Fed um, needs to start raising rates again. What about cutting rates as we get nearer to inflation targets? When do you think the Fed's going to start? Yeah, so we, we've we said, I think since um, July, we, we thought the Fed's next move would be to start cutting rates. The exact timing of that's always difficult to predict. But I think the main thing from our perspective is what happens to inflation. If we're right that that's going to continue heading lower and crucially, we think continue falling a bit more quickly than the Fed seems to be anticipating. I think there's a good chance we'll see rate cuts coming onto the agenda, certainly in the first half of next year, potentially as as soon as the first quarter. What happens in terms of economic growth is also going to be a determinant of that. And look, if growth remains as strong as it was in the third quarter, clearly that is going to be a potential barrier for, for the Fed to be lowering rates. Having said that, though, you know our baseline forecast is actually still that the U.S. is is likely to slip into a mild recession over the coming quarters. But even if that doesn't happen, I think there's still plenty of reason to expect, at a minimum, a pretty sharp slowdown in growth over the next few quarters to well below its um, potential pace. So, in that environment, weaker growth, rapidly falling inflation, I think there 
there should be more than enough evidence for the, the Fed to, to start cutting rates early next year. Finally, on domestic politics, House of Representatives finally has a new speaker getting back to the business of passing bills. Will that include another spending bill in mid-November or is the risk of a government shutdown still on the agenda? Yes. So Mike Johnson, a Louisiana Republican, has been uh, elected as House Speaker. He's something of an unknown quantity, but there does seem to be a general sense that on the one hand, he is something of a pragmatist, but also perhaps more importantly, he seems to be a lot more popular with the sort of conservative wing of the of the House Republican group than obviously Kevin McCarthy was. So I think there is possibly a bit more chance now that he will be willing to organize some kind of solution to the the funding deadline that is arising next month. So the current continuing resolution to fund the government expires on the 17th of November. And yeah, obviously, to the extent that there is now a House Speaker finally after just about three weeks, I think there is hopefully now more chance that they will be able to organize some kind of temporary or permanent solution to avoid a shutdown. Having said that, though, I think by all accounts, Johnson himself does hail from the you know, the right of the party. He is, by many accounts, a, a reasonably hardline conservative. So I think there does have to be a, a lingering concern of potential flashpoints in negotiations with the, obviously, the Democratic Senate majority at some point further down the line. That was Andrew Hunter on the US Outlook, our US Economics Weekly, our Friday review of the week and preview of the coming week's key data and events has more on US GDP as well as more analysis on that upcoming Fed meeting. I'll post that on the podcast page. Andrew's going to be joining economists from our Europe and UK teams for a drop-in. That's one of our short-form online briefings. After the Bank of England decision this coming Thursday, they'll be talking about the latest ECB, Bank of England and Fed decisions. We've also got drop-ins this coming week on our new work on R-Star or Equilibrium Real Interest Rates, on the timing of commercial real estate recoveries in the UK and Europe, and what surging bond yields mean for Asia. I'll link to our event section on the podcast page so you can register for those sessions. Staying on Asia and bond yields, there's speculation the Bank of Japan will decide to tweak its yield curve control policy again in its meeting on Tuesday. We don't think it's likely and explain why in our Japan Economics Weekly, but we'll of course be bringing you our rapid reaction to the meeting and more in-depth analysis in the hour or so after. If the BOJ does move, then expect our Asia and markets teams to be providing you insight into the domestic and global implications of this through the day. Now, we're continuing to monitor the Israel-Hamas war for macro and market implications, but events of recent weeks have highlighted broader issues around how geopolitical tensions affect financial markets. Jonas Goldman, our Deputy Chief Markets Economist, has just published an in-depth report which takes a close look at these issues. I spoke to Jonas earlier on Friday. Now, this was before the apparent expansion of Israel's ground operations. And I started by asking why, nearly three weeks after Hamas launched its surprise attack on Israel, financial markets have, for the most part, taken events in their stride. Well, if we're being brutally honest, war in the Middle East is unfortunately not a new or particularly unusual headline, as horrific as events over the past three weeks have been. They're the continuation of a long and, and ugly history in that part of the world. So markets are, I guess, kind of used to this sort of headlines. 
because it's been a pretty steady stream of them over the years. Now, more generally, whether it's the Middle East or, or somewhere else, most wars or sort of geopolitical events or crises, whatever you want to call them, however much they dominate the news headlines, they tend not to really move the dial for the global economy and therefore global markets. You know, the economies of the countries involved are, you know, in this case and in most cases, are, are just too small most of the time. So typically what you see is there is a substantial impact on financial markets in the countries or regions that are directly affected, which we've seen in Israel over the past few weeks. But unless there's a threat of the war crisis escalating to involve major economies or importantly commodity markets, then it's not going to make much difference to markets globally. So in this case, there is some risk of that happening, which is why we've seen a a degree of impact on on global markets. Obviously, the, the worry is that this could escalate from an issue between Israel and Hamas to one involving Iran, uh, the US, or perhaps others uh, in the region. And because the Middle East is the source of such a large share of global energy supply, the risk of disruption you know, there leading to higher energy prices is the key thing that, that markets worry about. You know, There are plenty of examples of, of that happening in the past and making making a substantial impact. You know, So if you look at energy markets, there is a bit of a sort of uncertainty premium there. If you look at you know, oil and also nowadays LNG. Another sign of where you might cite is that the gold price is up almost 10% over the past three weeks, despite bond yields going up, which is a bit unusual. Obviously, gold is a sort of ultimate safe haven and, and uh, for a lot of people. And, and so that, that, I guess, is another sign that, that there is an underlying worry here, even if it's not making a, a major impact on, on say, equity and, and bond markets, which I think most, you know, most if not all of what's happened over the past three weeks, uh, it's the usual factors, economic data, central banks, earnings news, uh, and so on, um, sort of separate from from this this conflict. So I'd say the general perception is that the risk of escalation is, is pretty limited in this instance. Um, whether that's right, it's very hard to judge. It's our baseline assumption, because historically, you know, most of these type of events, they don't escalate far enough to, to really affect things uh, globally. But we're not geopolitics experts, and, and neither are most uh, people in markets. Yeah, difficult enough reading inflation and, and economic activity. In terms of the market response, though, your report does draw on historical precedent. I wanted to ask how useful, just coming off what you were saying about energy markets there specifically, but how useful are episodes like 9-11 or the two Gulf Wars as comparisons for, for what we're seeing here? Well, I think in, in terms of the shock value, the kind of surprise to, to markets, there's definitely some commonality. You might add the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year into that category as well. I think even until the last minute, the, you know, the, the, there was still the belief that it was all, all for show and it wasn't going to, to actually happen. Um, but I think in terms of the actual impact on, on the global economy and, and energy markets and so on, this event, the Israel-Hamas conflict or war, whatever you want to call it, it still falls well short of those comparisons. Because 9-11, the Gulf Wars, they all they involved the US directly. They also, at least in the first, you know, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, it made a pretty sizable dent uh, to oil production, oil supply. The same last year with the Russian invasion and sanctions, uh, a lot of supply disruption, both in energy and, and across a range of other commodity markets. So there, there was actual, you know, physical disruption and disruption to to supply chains, rather than what we have right now, which is the uncertainty that well that might happen. That, that uncertainty is going to move prices to some degree. You might see a bit of a risk premium as as we have, but it isn't going to 
drug prices 50, 60, 100% higher. That's, that's just not, you, you need actual disruption for that. So I think it's more useful to think of those historical comparisons as a benchmark for what might happen if this escalates, you know, in terms of impact on the market, how much are we going to see it? Those are the benchmarks, but they're not sort of where we are right now. And, and the worst case that you highlight in your report in terms of the, just purely in terms of the market outcome is, is 1973, is, is the Yom Kippur War and the, the response of, of Arab producers to that in instituting this oil embargo. But we're, we're not seeing that happening, are we? You know, that's the example that everyone always cites it's ever since the past 50 years. That's been like the big worry that you see that again, because that that really had a huge impact globally and, and messed up a whole con- all, all, all manner of things across the world. And then, you know, the, the, the inflation surge in the, in the 1970s from a financial market perspective, the 1970s, you know, was the worst decade apart perhaps from the 1930s that we have on record uh, in terms of, of real returns in an asset market. So it's a, you know, there's a lot of shock value in that. It's unlikely that we see a repeat of that, you know, for just thinking about the for a number of reasons, right? That there's not just the oil market that went wrong in the 1970s; several other things also went wrong. But if we just think about the oil market, well, it's it's hard to see another oil embargo like that or a disruption on that scale. The world is just very different today than it than it was 50 years ago. One thing is that well, the Middle East is about a third of global oil production today. That's a lot, but back then it was more than half. Advanced economies today, they're a lot less oil intensive. So we produce a lot more GDP for each um, barrel of oil we consume. It's because energy efficiency obviously has improved usually over that period and continues to improve. Second point is that, well, the big oil producers today are also very, uh, the same countries, but they're quite different places, I would say. They're a lot richer. They're a lot more integrated in the global economy and financial markets with huge sovereign wealth funds. So they have a lot at stake, a lot more to lose from disrupting the global economy in that way, which is, you know, I think those two things together is why we think of that as, as the risk is pretty far out of the tail. It just doesn't seem like something that they're contemplating at the moment. This idea that your report makes very well that's perhaps underappreciated is that the policy backdrop matters at times of geopolitical crises like these. You just spoke about the, the 1970s and, and the broader economic backdrop for the, for the Yom Kippur War. But let's talk about policy now. Let's start with monetary because Christine Lagarde was talking about the impact of the war after the ECB meeting on Thursday. And she talked about energy prices as a key risk. And that obviously echoes the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that you, you spoke about earlier. Your report does draw a distinct comparison between where central banks are now and, and actually where they were in, in 1990 at the first Gulf War and, and, and where central banks were in, in February, March last year when the Russian military crossed the border of Ukraine. Talk a bit about monetary policy, where we are in the monetary policy cycle and how that affects the market response to, to this crisis. Yeah, so that's one of the things that was really striking when you look back at these previous periods is that it's it's really important when it happens in the economic cycle because that's going to affect how the central bank responds to to the economic spillovers. If we think about where we were in February last year, the economy was already running very hot. You know, labor market was very tight. You had all the sort of disruption from the pandemic still sort of working its way through, resulting in, in high you know higher energy prices already, and then an additional shock on top of that. You had, uh, you know, this concern about a wage price spiral. You know, prices are just going up, and then they're getting to this sort of ingrained inflation environment, sort of well above two percent uh, inflation. You know, that's sort of what's happened in the 1970s. Again, this is sort of 
the scaring example that, that everyone always draws on. And, and the central banks have, you know, said very explicitly, we, we are doing everything we can to avoid that outcome again. So in a sense, the energy stock last year, again, like, as in the 1970s, it acted as an amplifier, both in terms of the impact on on the economy and, and therefore central bank decisions. And then, of course, obviously last year was not a good year for financial markets, equity prices, bond prices plunging together in a large part because of what central banks were forced to do. Now, the, if you look at the Gulf Wars or, or 9-11, you might add the Libyan civil war in, in 2011 as well, uh, which, you know, again, disrupted oil markets to some degree. Those events all occurred when central banks were already easing monetary policy because the economy was already weak for, for other unre- unrelated reasons. So underlying inflation wasn't an issue. It was weak and they were trying to get it higher, if anything. So that allowed central banks to cushion the blow to the economy by easing policy or keeping policy loose that helped financial assets as well. So in a, in a way, they could act counter-cyclically. They, they do this thing of call it looking through temporary spikes in energy inflation, right? And so if you think about where we are today, well, interest rates are already you know, much higher than they were a year and a half ago. There's a sense that central banks are coming to the end of their tightening cycle. The question is sort of when uh, they start cutting as opposed to, to how much more they're going to hike. Um, and so I think they're in a, in a better position than they were a year and a half ago to, to deploy that usual strategy of looking through uh, what's hopefully going to be a temporary spike in energy prices. I mean, so far there hasn't really been much of a spike anyway, so it's it's a sort of uh, it's a second degree risk, if you will. And I think that supports our base case that, that you know, central banks are at or close to the end of their tightening cycles and that, that means that uh, interest rates are going to come down we think it's going to come down faster than, than what's currently in the market, and then that should put down pressure on, on government bond yields over the coming months. There's a lot more in your report on, on monetary policy, on the fiscal risks associated with this war, but I do want to end just by asking where the balance of risk lies. You talk about markets having largely taken this in their stride so far. Is that likely to continue? I mean, the, the most likely outcome, yes, is that we sort of muddle through, as we've seen over the past few few weeks, but yeah, at risk of using a rather overused term, uh, the risks are all skewed to the downside. You know, there's many ways in which this gets uh, worse and it escalates and starts to to have a more substantial impact on energy markets and therefore broader global economy and so on. But because there isn't much higher risk premium discounted already, you know, even if there was good news and, and peace breaks out, I don't think that would really do much to, to boost asset prices. There wouldn't be much of a positive effect from that side. So the balance is, is uh, very heavily skewed towards, towards the downside. That was Jonas Goldsman on war in the Middle East and risks to financial markets. I'll post his report on the podcast page. There's a lot more in it, including on the vulnerabilities of the semiconductor trade to tensions over Taiwan. Uh, I'll also add a report from Caroline Bain, our chief commodities economist, all about why oil markets have been so resilient so far. If you're a subscriber to CE Advance, our premium platform, you get access to all our reports from financial and commodities markets analysis through all our macro coverage and beyond. You also get access to our proprietary data series and near to long term forecasts via interactive tools and data resources that plug straight into your workflows. Get in touch if you'd like to learn more about CE Advance. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. 
Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever. 